interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Good morning to all of you. I have two stories to tell you, and then to step into the text with you, and then a question, so what of all this for us? Perhaps about 10 years ago, my wife and I saw a good friend in our church on a Sunday morning, and we hadn't seen her for three months, and we said, come have lunch with us today, and she agreed to do that. Her name was Clydette Powell, and she had been in Africa for the pre- previous three months. Uh, she works at USAID, and she's in charge of all the tuberculosis programs that U.S. government is interested in around the world. Uh, people who die of HIV-AIDS often die of tuberculosis, if you have not understood that. And so she has quite a reach and a, quite a responsibility. And, uh, in early September... Uh, through USAID, the White House had asked if someone would go and look for several months at the impact of drought and famine on disease. And so she was the one asked to do this, and so she traveled a lot, and she saw an awful lot, and came to our house in early January, Sunday morning, and we had our Christmas tree still up, and we had a fire in the fireplace, and after lunch we sat and talked for a while. And Clydette is a remarkably thoughtful person, a a rock-solid person, a measured person, we asked, so what did you see, Claudia? What happened there? What, what do you know now? She just immediately said, it was outrageous. It was outrageous. And she's not somebody who you know, typically jumps into the world and into conversation with you know, strong statements like that. But she just kept repeating it was outrageous. And she talked about going into many different countries and just seeing great, great, great need and seeing inability of the West and anybody else in the world to actually address the needs, and even with good hearts and you know millions of dollars actually of you know, aid promised and even delivered sometimes, it would be sitting on tarmacs and air, uh, airports and undelivered and unused. And she just kept saying to me, to my wife and to me, it was outrageous. It was just outrageous. That was Sunday. On Friday night, I was uh, asked to take part in a weekend of a Veritas forum in another part of the country. And on one evening, Tony Campolo was the speaker, and then it was uh, um, me, and then it was the Jars of Clay singing in a concert the next night. And uh, I thought it was sort of unfair in some ways, but there it was. Um, and so Tony did his uh, you know, wonderful grab your heart and care about the world. And, and, uh, and I spoke the next evening, and um, I actually began by telling the story of the conversation with Clydette and raising this question, how is it possible to really know the complexity of the hurts of the world and its longings and its uh, woundings and its needs and somehow still choose to step in? Because Clydette wasn't going to walk away from that, even with its outrageousness. It wasn't as if somehow, now I've seen enough. That wasn't a response at all. It was, now that I know all that I know, It's harder, it's more complex, but this is my life, and of course, what I will do is to step more fully into this. After the lecture, there were students who wanted to talk for a while, and I did that, and then there was a group of guys who were standing in the 
kind of the back of the group, and they walked up and said, could we talk some more too? And I had known of their group, the Jars of Clay, but never really met them at all, and that was who wanted to talk some more. So we talked for a while into the night about their own sense of need and the world and their music and the platform they had as musicians and wondering whether they might be able to somehow raise consciousness or raise a voice for some place in the world that needed help. And, and uh, Two months later, I went out at a concert with them somewhere and talked longer about it with them. And <clears throat> by then, that, that time, we'd, they had decided to name something the Bloodwater Mission, uh, an effort to address the complex needs of clean blood and clean water in Africa. We talked about it off and on over the course of time, and the next fall, I guess maybe September, I spoke at a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, on the faces of justice. And uh, one of those who was there was a young woman from uh, Washington State where she was an undergraduate, and she'd come down for this conference. And we talked after one session, and, uh, you know, like often happens, you know, listened for a while, and I began to ask some questions. And before it was all over, I was very impressed with this young woman named Jenna. She was actually a senior in college at the time, but she'd already been to Africa several occasions, and she had passions and passions and passions, and she was forceful in her own 21-year-old way and eager and willing to pour her heart out for the world. And I remembered her, and I wrote her name down, and she gave me her email, I guess it was, and about three weeks later, I guess, I was at home and I got a telephone call from the band, the Jars of Clay. They were on tour along the West Coast. And they said, Steve, we want to do something, but we don't know how to do it because, you see, we play guitars. <laughs> um, do you have any ideas? You know? I said, well, I don't know, really. I... But you know what? I met a young woman a few weeks ago who, aren't you going to Washington State on this tour? They said, yeah. Well, going to Spokane? They said, yeah. And I said, well... Here's her name, and let me call the president of the school out there and see if he can arrange for you to have a chance to meet her. Really. So they met her, and they talked, and about a month later, she wrote a 25-page paper. Uh, this is what I would do. Uh, and uh, when she graduated that spring, she moved to Nashville, and uh, we began to wonder, could she do something, bring into being a vision to actually address this complexity? And I was down there a few times that fall, and often they were just strange, strange conversations and sometimes tearful conversations. And one day we spent most of the day at a, the Frothy Monkey, which is this kind of hip coffee shop in Nashville, and with papers and papers and coffees and teas and things to eat. We just kind of worked through and worked through, and could we do this? I don't know, really. Maybe we could try to do something. And about two weeks later, her father called me one night, of a nationally known management consultant. And you know, he was kind to me, but he said, you know, I know my daughter likes you, but what are you doing here? Um, you know, I'm not sure this is going to happen because it's just, it's just too much of a need, really. I mean, there's, it's just too complex, and she's only 22 years old now. And he wasn't mean about it at all, but he was concerned as a father should be for his daughter. And I didn't make any promises to him at all. I just said, I understand what you're saying, and let's watch it carefully. And so it happens in a little while. And, well, before a few months happened, uh, the Jars of Clay won on a national radio station in the course of a day raised $500,000 for this idea of the Bloodwater Mission. And, uh, and over time, you know, there's an organization been formed, a board's been developed, and the board is really, I would say, a very excellent board and really awfully good people in it and thoughtful people and uh, gifted and serious people and there's a staff now of about 15 or 20 people in Nashville who work together day by day, and 
a staff growing actually in Africa that's been placed there. And, and the deep, deep concern in all this is to find a way to work with African people who are already concerned about these things themselves. It's not so much to bring the West in and say, we will do the right thing here for you, but how do we somehow come alongside African people and say, well, you're thoughtful, you're serious, you love God and your world, and how could we come alongside and help you do what you want to do? This past spring, there was a grand gala gathering in Nashville called the Thousand Wells Celebration. Now, after some years, there have actually been a thousand wells that have been dug and are sustained and maintained in different parts of Africa. And there are a number of clinics that have been built and are maintained and sustained. And it really is a, sort of a deep, mysterious, and but very, very important nexus between the need for clean blood and clean water. Uh, people who are susceptible to HIV AIDS, if they don't have access to clean water, they're even more susceptible. And so there's a great, great need for this to happen. And so this has been a part of my life over the last number of years, and I'm in Nashville quite a bit, actually, just continuing to think through with them, not because I'm a water specialist, because I'm not, but because I'm an HIV-AIDS specialist, because I'm not, but sort of continue to keep the flam- flames fanned over why we're doing this and how we're doing this and why it matters. But you see, it all grew out of a conversation in a, in a snowflakey Sunday afternoon with the fireplace on and the Christmas tree light still there and the Peter Pan window in our house, you know, which is sometimes can be seem so pretty, especially on a snowflakey January afternoon. But hearing this woman who was a dear friend say to me again and again, you know, it was just outrageous. It was just outrageous. And you know, some things in life are outrageous, aren't they? They just seem to be too much to take in. And what are you going to do with them anyway? Because they just seem to be too much to respond to. You know something, you hear something, and you don't know what on earth to do with it after all. It wasn't so many years ago that after class one day, teaching as I was doing on Capitol Hill, a colleague of mine stopped me in the hall and said, don't you know, I named this person's name, and I said, yeah. He told me, well, she's just been found murdered in her apartment. I remember just literally falling back against the wall, just thinking, no, no. No, I won't, I won't have this. This is not, not, not right, really. Well, what we discovered over the next days was that she had been left bloodied in her apartment and no one ever was found as to who did it. And so we don't quite know all the, that might be known about it, but it was an awful moment to live through in my life and our community's life. And we had a time of prayer and singing a few nights later in our home and I remember just weeping, really, and just trying to respond to what had happened. And thinking, I think that night, as even as I was somehow opening my heart to God, thinking, I don't know, really, if I can keep doing this. Maybe this time it's just one too many times. Maybe this one is just going to be it for me. Maybe this sorrow, maybe this awfulness, really, is just one too many awful moments. And I don't know, really, whether I want to keep doing this. Over the next weeks, I would say, I walked as close to the edge of my despair over my own faith as I ever have in this life. Just wondering, is this one too many horrors? I don't know what to do with it, really. And I remember in those weeks also seeing a cover story in Harper's Magazine. It was a strange decision Harper's made to interview Camille Poglia and Neil Postman over the impact of television in American life. 
Camille Pogley, the feminist philosopher and postman, uh, professor of communications at NYU. And Harper's hosted a 10-course meal for them to talk their way through the meaning of television in American society, what it did to us, what our response to it was all about. And Camille was somebody who actually had TVs in every room of her house and always had the TV on and just thought it was really the best thing. And she's not a fool for a moment. She's a very, very bright woman, a very intelligent woman, a very insightful woman. But her response to TV was so much different than Postman's, who was, of course, the person who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death a generation ago. Asking the question, well, how is it possible to watch the evening news and to see in the course of five minutes that there was an airplane crash in India and there was an earthquake in Chile and there was a rape in Central Park and the Mets beat the Cardinals and there's an ad for hemorrhoids medicine too. And Postman's question was, what are you going to do with all this? Because it said, you can't do much, can you? How will you respond to this other than somehow just to turn the barometer of your heart down and say, well, okay, there it is. And go on with your life and go to bed. Knowing you've heard things that are awful, that are important, that are weighty, that in some ways shake the world and they shake communities and they shake hearts, and yet you've heard them and you have no ability to respond. In the course of the evening conversation, Postman recounts this story of these horrors on the nightly news, and then Hoglia said back to him, but Neil, that's just the way it is. Come on. And he protests and says, no, it's just the way it is. Buddha smiles at it all, is how she put it. I remember those few words, and Buddha smiles at it all, just stopped me in my heart. And I thought, so... So what am I going to do with this, really? Because I was at the very edge of, you know, of a despair over my own belief. And I knew I was not going to go with Buddha at that point. So I opened up the scriptures again and asked myself, so does the Bible teach anything that would allow me to continue to live my life? Can I still somehow hold on to it with integrity to any kind of belief in the God of the Bible and not just throw it all away? And I found my way into the text, John chapter 11, which over time I've come to think, if that is not in the Bible, I don't think I really want to be a Christian. If it isn't in the Bible, if God doesn't actually reveal himself in this way, I don't think I really have any interest in the rest of it, frankly. Now, we could talk about that if you want to, and maybe I've misread, but I do feel pretty deeply about that. If it's not this story of God being this way, then I don't know why else I would be interested so what is the story? Well, we've heard from Dave the outlines of it, and we've heard of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, brother and sisters, and Jesus gets this news of Lazarus's illness, and he eventually gets to Bethany, and Bethany, of course, is on its way to Jerusalem, two miles away from Jerusalem. He's on his way to the Passover celebration, so keep the trajectory right here, okay? This is really the week before the Passover begins. And Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, on to his own death, he stops in Bethany to take into his heart the death of Lazarus. And in a Middle Eastern world, of course, it's not quite the quietness of our mortuary experiences most of the time, where we reverently and silently walk in and you know, remember the dead. In the Middle Eastern world, of course, it's much more a raising of one's hands and a screaming out into heaven and crying out as to what has happened on, in my life and the renting of clothes and the throwing of dust in the air and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And Jesus walks into this world and he meets Mary and Martha 
and they tell him that he has died, and you've heard some of the conversation of Jesus and these sisters of Lazarus. And Of course, it also is, you know, notably for f- five-year-olds in the world, it's the place where the shortest verse in the Bible is, is isn't it? Jesus wept. Maybe you were proud to know that one time, too, in your life. Well, I remember that, but it's also more important that even though we acknowledge his weeping at that point was, in some sense, honest empathy, true sympathy for the sorrow of his friends as their brother's death, what began to get me more interested, frankly, were the verses that come after that. Because it does matter to me that the God I want to follow cries. But I've called this the complex tears of God, the complex tears of God. In the verses that follow, we have two times this strange phrase used in the Greek language. It's the very same word that the Greek poets use to describe a war horse, a stallion, raised up on its hind legs, its hoofs pawing the air, its nostrils flared out, eager to enter into the battle. In some sense, fierce with its own energy for the fight before and the poets in the Greek world use the same word, embryomai, which we have as he was deeply moved in spirit. He was greatly moved. It comes to us twice in this story. He was deeply moved. Now, we need to just enter in, really, to the reality of God in the flesh here. Because you see, it means everything in the universe to me that God in the flesh, that this Jesus whom I had long professed to love, that he would be angry at death. That it wouldn't be simply the requirement that I need to somehow just take it all in and maybe in some skewed response to the brokenness of life decide to smile at it all. But that you see, I wanted my God, I needed my God, I needed this Jesus to actually be angry at the hurt of the world. I needed him to be angry at the brokenness of life. I needed him to be actually angry at death and its wrecking of human heart and and, and longing, this last and final enemy, I needed Jesus to be angry at it. And you see, when I began to dig my way into the text and I began to read this, but also commentaries on the text by people like Benjamin Warfield from Princeton 100 years ago, who wrote an essay called The The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He resides in in this text, John 11. And he makes a very, very important point that the emotions of God, God himself, are emotions which are complex. And the tears of God are complex tears. On the one hand, they are sympathetic tears, and we need them to be that. But you see, they're also the tears of anger. They're the tears of outrage. It is outrageous. It is not the way it's supposed to be, really. Of course, as the story goes on, we have Jesus walking to the tomb and these large words, Lazarus, come out. John Calvin, when he writes about this passage, he says, it's as if Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet to the evil one at that very moment, aware of his own death in a few days and saying, in a sense, Satan, it begins now. The battle begins now. We are after it together now. The gauntlet is thrown. Lazarus, come out. I'm stepping in here. It's not going to be this way forever. I need Jesus to be that Jesus who somehow in his own heart takes into his heart my longings and my sorrows and my disappointments and cries in that way with me. But I also need my Jesus to be a Jesus who 
God in the flesh, sovereign over all of history, somehow sees the, the heartache of history in this last and final enemy death and is outraged at it. And it will not simply be, and he smiles. I've read the Chronicles of Narnia a lot, many, many, many times. We have five children. I've read them aloud twice to all five of the children. So I have loved these stories, and I always found myself thinking, really, I never saw this before, because it was always sort of a new story to me in some ways, even though I'd read them again and again. But chronologically speaking, the first of the stories is the magician's nephew. It is the story of the magician, Uncle Andrew, and his nephew, Diggory. There's backdrop to the story of London life and Diggory's mother, who's ill in bed, and he hears the doctor say she won't live unless, and motivated by his own longing for his mother's health, and of course, Lewis himself, this 10-year-old boy in reality back in Belfast, uh, watches his own mother die over the course of years. And so this is really autobiographical, isn't it, for Lewis himself. And he sends Diggory off into the birth of Narnia. And Diggory is entranced, and he wants more of it, and yet he has in mind, I need to do something for my mother. Maybe in this magical, amazing new world of Narnia, maybe something could be done for my mother. And Aslan just says, says to Diggory, come, we need to talk. And Diggory imagines he can make a deal with this creator of Narnia, and never having met him before, but he sees him in power and glory and wonder and creativity and says, maybe we can talk, maybe we can make a deal here. And that's fully in his mind as he begins to walk towards Aslan. But as he gets closer and closer to Aslan, and finally as he gets right up in front of Aslan's tawny chest and his flowing mane, and he sees into Aslan's eyes, and he sees tears coming down from Aslan's on his cheeks. And as Lewis tells the tale, he says, at that moment I was sure that Aslan cared more about my mother than I did myself. So you see, I need Aslan to be like that. I would guess probably you do too. The implications for us, what's it all mean for us? Well, think about a couple of them here. Again, as the father of many children, sometimes I say, people say, how many do you have? And I say, 18. And they say, no, 18. I say, no, just five. And then that seems better, really. Seems, well, it's only five, you know. Um, um, but in these five children, as I, you know, I've watched them now at 33 to 23, they're no longer, you know, in our home as much, and they're no longer crying in my presence as often, and sometimes they do come home and cry, and I feel they're weeping on my shoulder over broken romances and things like that, but it's not the same thing anymore, really. When they were three years old and four years old, and somebody would grieve them in the family, and somebody would hurt them, or they would you know, be upset by something, which mostly had to do with their own egocentric existence, you know, their own sense that, in fact, I am the center of center of history, and uh, that's why I'm crying. Um, and I found myself coming to the conclusion after a while of watching this and my own faltering steps to be a father, deciding I was going to begin to say to them as tenderly as I could, I hear your cries, and I honor your cries, and I attend to your cries, but you know what also? I don't want you to use up all your tears today, because you know someday you're going to need to cry about something that really is important. And if you use up all your tears right now, you won't have any tears left. So save some, okay? I think we have a pedagogical, maybe even a discipling task in the church to teach each other how to cry 
and when to cry. You know, we can't be romantics about the brokenness of the world. It's simply not a possibility, really. We sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness in the first service. Again, we'll do it you know, in a few minutes here. I think sometimes when we sing this song, we forget where it comes from. Maybe even the way we sing the song isn't quite the way Jeremiah sang it himself, which might be interesting to think about for the musicians in the room here. But you know this, these words, great is thy faithfulness, they come from the book we call Lamentations. So here's the prophecy of Jeremiah, which goes on and on, this letter to the exiles in Babylon who were singing their own songs, How long, O Lord? You know, we sit by the rivers of Babylon, and how long, O Lord? And then Lamentations follows the book of Jeremiah. And of course, it's these lamentations, these laments of Jeremiah the prophet. Over what? Over the heartaches of history. Even his own experience of having his own life be crushed. And if you read actually the chapter where these words get the hymn from, it's about as worse as it could be for anybody in history, really. Awful things have happened to, Jer- to Jeremiah. And he recounts them one by one. And you find yourself being overwhelmed by how hard it must have been for Jeremiah, who then at, at a certain point says, but you know what? Your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faith. We need to learn to cry about things that are worth crying about. We need to have songs, I think, that help us even in our laments. So when we sing this song in a few minutes, remember it isn't abstracted. It doesn't exist in some heavenly realm out there apart from the heartaches of history, the heartbreaks of the human heart. It's a good song, but we need to sing it remembering where it came from because sometimes we do need to cry. A second one of it for us would be this. I think we see in Jesus' life here, in the story of John 11, a decision, God in the flesh as he was, sovereign Lord of all of history as he was, fully God, fully human as he was, to step into history. It's Jesus choosing to step into history, complex, broken, full of death and odor, as the warning comes from Lazarus' sister. He already smells, and Jesus enters into this, throwing the gauntlet down. You see, if we can't be romantics, we can't be nihilists either about history, about life. We can't somehow be people as if we assume about each other that you don't really have a hurt in your heart, do you? My assumption after the years I've lived is that whenever I walk into a room, if I was just had the chance to talk to you and to you and to you and to you and to you, if we could sit down and have an honest conversation and you were willing to talk about it, we would hear one more time, maybe 18 times, about the disappointments you've had, about the sorrows that are yours, about the wounds in your life, and that somehow you are still trying to come here on Sunday morning and give praise to God and say, I've not given up yet. But you've come from a life and a world and a week where I know it is true, I just know it is true, that you have had your own disappointments, and sometimes they are grievous, and sometimes they are just outrageous. And yet you're still here today with hope, hoping that God hears, hoping that there's some word from the Lord that might somehow make sense of your lives for another week. We can't be romantics. We can't be nihilists either. When we hear in John's letters to the church some years later, we call them John 1, 2, and 3, we hear John putting it this way. Jesus came to turn back the effects of the fall. 
That's why the Son of Man appeared, to turn back the effects of the fall. I think that is a vocation for everyone, every one of us, men, women, young, old, to wake up in the morning, to go to bed at night, having committed ourselves one more day to turning back the effects of the fall. As one of my own great teachers, John Stott, put it, these images, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, these are affective commodities. They affect their environments. They change their environments. And Stott puts it this way, very simply, why would you curse a room for being dark? Why wouldn't you turn the light on? Do that. Turn the light on, actually. Why would you curse the meat for rotting? Meat rots that is not salted. Salt the meat. He says, when the world begins to go bad, don't curse the world or blame the world. He said, really, the question comes back to us. So why weren't we there? Why didn't we get involved? Why didn't we step into history and care about politics and care about business and economic development and care about the arts and care about neighborhoods and cities and cultures and continents? Why didn't we actually care as God cares to step in as God's people with the vocation which is ours to be the salt and the light of history? into every square inch of the whole of reality. I worship in an Anglican church. It's actually a church that's 300 years old. It's a city called Falls Church, Virginia, and it's the Falls Church. We end our worship Sunday by Sunday with these words, to promise in a prayer to love and serve you, O God, with gladness and singleness of heart. These words mean everything to me, really. And one of my children, Jonathan, who's 23, he was about 10, he began to notice that I did make quite a bit of those words. And Jonathan began to put his head on my shoulder at worship, at the end of worship, week by week. And it was as if, I know when we pray these words, Daddy, that they mean everything to you. And I would simply say, dear brothers and sisters, as we take up you know, life in a very broken world, with much that needs to be done, as the salt and light of the kingdom as we are, that we need to be people who, at the end, keep alive in our hearts that, in fact, it's a promise not to be in despair, not to even to go out with anger in our mouths, but to somehow, fired by God himself, inspired by God in the flesh, Jesus, who is angry at death, hearing and to the, the tears and seeing the cries of, of his friends, that we enter into life with gladness and singleness of heart. I mentioned yesterday to those who were here that I'm a great learner from Bono of you too. But hearing him speak about his own vocation, I'll just leave you with these words. He says, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope that when the day is all done, I've been able to tear a little corner off of the darkness. Well, dear brothers and sisters, we could all live and die with those words. May they become flesh in your life and mine. Amen.